This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast, episode 186. Today on our show, Terry Cole from Plaid Room Records. The reason record stores continue to exist, there's so much music in the world, but somebody has to tell you what to check out. Somebody has to be the person, the informer, the person distilling it down to, here's what's good. Terry's a former school teacher who opened a record store after becoming dissatisfied with his previous job. He explains, we also talk about the appeal of vinyl. Running a record store and a record label, that'd be Coal Mine Records, in the 21st century, and a whole lot more. If you've been liking the podcast, if you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo, simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. I'll remind you about that. And also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Terry Cole about vinyl and record labels and more. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I Cincinnati She came down from Cincinnati Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati So how's it okay. going? Are you at home or are you in your office at the record store? Uh, I'm in my office at the store. Very good. All right, cool. Well, you sound good. I'm going to have to get closer to the mic, I think, or maybe I'll... Yeah, that should probably, or maybe I'll push you back a little bit here like that, and I'll turn my gain up, and there we go, that should do it. Okay, good. All right, well, glad we're finally getting this uh, knocked out after all these years, although no, we're, we're no longer neighbors. Uh, we had we had to leave the neighborhood. Um, yeah. Just when things started jumping. Uh, but um, Yeah, you know, it was a weird, it was a weird time last year for, for retail, man. It, it was. We um, discovered for folks who, who may be listening from Loveland, uh, I'm sure people would be listening from elsewhere, but since you are in Loveland and we might have a few more Loveland listeners, people do ask us uh, why we left. And, uh, well, as you had uh, alluded to, COVID was one of the reasons uh, we found out that, as Darren put it, most of our business was online, although we have found out since we couldn't get rid of the other two stores because of lease situations, and they decided to keep them, and then they dis- the stores have now taken off. So if we would have stayed in Loveland, I think it would have been in a lot better shape. But uh, COVID and the fact they hadn't finished all that uh, renovation down there um, really hurt. And it was far away, and it was you know it was hard to yeah. de- dedicate one person to going out there and not running it but taking stuff out there. But things are jumping in Loveland now. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, I'm pretty much upstairs running the the label side of things um i mean i I help a lot with the the store too but most of what i'm doing is is uh label side which is fun and it's all it's all growing at a pretty pretty quick clip cool well we'll get to the label in a second but yeah Yeah. one of the reasons we moved there originally was because they were rebuilding all those restaurants across the street from us and then of course uh you know covid hit and then they the restaurants had just reopened and but it does seem uh, you guys seen an uptick in business and traffic from the the finished renovations, or is, is it still like it was pre-COVID, pretty much? Um, it feels like there's a little bit of an uptick for sure. Um, but I think we're probably one of the few businesses that just in sort of impervious to organic foot traffic. You know, True. like it's one of those 
it's you know record store is sort of a destination yeah location and um obviously restaurants and you know and things like you know restaurants obviously benefit greatly from the bike trail existing you know um and you know when it's rainy business slows whereas for us it's like rain snow yeah whatever you know people are still buying records um obviously being on the trail and being in downtown loveland gives us a lot of exposure and uh, i think i think a lot of our new customers come to us sort of indirectly that way so you know somebody might see us when they were down to ride the trail and then tell their friend that they know is into music oh have you been up to loveland there's a record store up there that that sort of thing is so it's a little more indirect than i think uh direct um for for our store but it's really i mean obviously it's anytime you get thousands of eyes on a saturday and sunday at your store it's really good yeah, my daughter and I used to say that uh, it, there probably aren't a lot of people walking down the trail with the records in hand, or even you know going by and seeing the store. And, you know, they're on their bike or they're carrying a canoe down to the river. They're not thinking, oh, "I'm gonna go buy some records." But uh, right, right. still, it is a good spot to be, though. It does because a, a vinyl record store does kind of fit the vibe of historic Loveland, nonetheless. Yeah, I think so. I think we're a really good, you know. Uh, it's like, like, like you guys, when you were here, it's like, it's a nice, it's nice to have some just like straight up retail, yes. you know, specialized retail. I think that's definitely a piece that, that felt like it was missing down here maybe five or six years ago. And, um, I think it's definitely moved in a, in a real positive direction, uh, since then. So are you from Cincinnati originally? Um, yeah, I'm from, well, Cincinnati area. I'm from Middletown. Middletown, there you go. Okay, so that's Cincinnati yeah. area, so we can ask what high school, I think, legally. And it, it, was it Middletown, or was it uh, a different school? Yeah, Middle, Middletown High School. Yep, and I was a teacher there as well for about oh. 10 years. Oh, really? Wow, that's cool. What'd you teach? Yeah. Uh, zoology and botany. Oh, wow, fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, okay, so... Uh, growing up, uh, I reckon you're probably a little younger than me, but growing up, were you, I'd be probably into music, but were you into records specifically? How was, how did your music uh, fandom, uh, formulate? Uh, yes, my dad is, uh, he's a record collector, and so he had, you know, tens of thousands of records in our basement, uh, all the time growing up, um, I would say, you know, my interest in records started when I was like 12 or 13. Um, we started, that's, that's right around the time eBay started and okay. it became sort of a way for me to, uh, save money for college. So I started selling records on eBay when I was 12 with my dad. We started selling 78s back then and I did that for about, so I was maybe 20 and, uh, 21 maybe and I paid for, yeah, both my degrees from Miami, cash, just by selling records wow. on eBay. Wow. So this is late 90s, early 2000s, I'm thinking? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I started selling in like 98. Okay. Well, there you go. And weirdly, yep. this was a time when Napster was huge and record stores themselves were starting to die because i just had this conversation with jim farmer from the reds hall of fame who now works for us at our otr store that uh, they had this great business model in the record business back in the 90s let's make everybody buy everything all over again so make everybody buy this and then when they ran out of that they're like well everybody bought all the records they had now they're on cd let's start closing all these mall record stores and that's exactly what they did so it's interesting you were able to make all that money at a time when the record industry was really in a lot of trouble uh yeah for sure i think the demographic we were going after because it was a global market um it was you know 
it was just different. You know, that, that time period might've been a hard time period to sell physical records of a new release, whether it was CDs or, or LPs, ah. but, uh, you know, from a collector, definitely that, that time period was definitely going after collectors. You know, we were going after people that they wanted, a, if they wanted a 78, they're definitely a collector. Um, oh, yeah. and yeah, selling, selling rare LPs and, and 45s. So yeah, sort of a, and you know, really that's, that's also the segment of the market that kept record stores alive, you know, like as, as CD primarily CD stores phased out or, or music stores phased out CDs, you know, the thing the the, the segments of the market that really kept record stores alive were used and collectible records. And, you know, a couple sub a couple genres of music, you know, primarily hip hop, electronic, uh, you know, dance stuff. And a lot of those labels and a lot of that music was still disseminated on LP. And that's that's really what kind of kept the industry going or that part of the industry going. And you were in it also before the big explosion in vinyl. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my world definitely was all in the used market back then yeah. um, to the point where when we started opening the store, I mean, I, to be quite honest, was very very ignorant as to how robust the the new vinyl market was in 2014 2015 like i was just it wasn't even on my radar um at all so you you didn't imagine when you were starting to sell records on ebay that one day people would actually want new vinyl again no not at all uh yeah because i mean back then reissues were sort of looked at like looked down at you know the idea of any i mean anything back then that was new in my mind was a reissue because there wasn't there weren't a whole lot of contemporary bands making records then and so anything time you saw any new lps you know it'd be reissues of you know classic soul or or rock and roll or you know r&b or jazz records and you know you look kind of look down at them because they were just reissues and you know not like a first press or a highly collectible thing and uh that's certainly shifted (laughs) since then for sure so when did you get the notion to start a record store um, so I went on a, a big road trip. So the late, I started the label in like 2007. Um, but it was just a hobby until around 2014. And, and by that time it had, I had like about 30 releases on the label, but it was still very much like just me, you know, in my spare time. Um, but I went on a road trip that summer of 2014 and I went to, uh, I drove all across the country out to the West coast up the North Northwest and I went to maybe a hundred and some record stores, just sort of like hustling the label to, to record store owners, just, you know, meeting them, talking with them, telling them what I'm doing, you know, it was just me and my Honda. And, uh, when I got back, you know, I sort of had accidentally done like a, you know, a core sample of the physical medium industry. And, um, I kind of had a real good gauge on the health of it sort of, and it felt like everything was on this upswing. Uh, and so my superintendent that fall bummed me out. Um, and so I decided I should quit. You know, well, I, I loved teaching, by the, I loved teaching, but how, how did the superintendent, how did he bum you out? Uh, uh, he, he, in my opinion, he just says it was, it was a really, the morale at the high school was just really, really low. And in my opinion, he uh. had his priorities very, very mixed up. For example, um, that year, the year I left, I think almost 40 teachers left the high school. 
Wow. Just nuts. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, like Middletown's a tough place, but I mean, I taught there, so I know those people. Like, I can, it's very easy for me to connect and build rapport with, with those students. Um, and, you know, he came to my room the day I drove down to Loveland. He came to my room and observed me doing a, a lesson, and it went well. And when he was going to speak to the staff at the end of the day, and I asked my principal what he thought of my lesson. And he said, oh, he didn't have anything to say about your lesson. Uh, he just said your hair was too long. <laughs> and that pissed me off. And because uh, it was just like, you know, yeah. it's such a petty thing. But it was one of those things was just like, that's really what you're worried about. We have all these problems in this town and you're concerned with the length of my hair. And so I was just I was just like fuming mad during that meeting. And so I was just thinking of ways I could get out of teaching and sort of transition into running the label full time. And so that's when the idea of like opening up a store came about because I, you know, that was something I was kind of familiar with and it would be more steady income than a record label. And yeah, so that afternoon I drove, I drove down here and started looking at places that were for lease. So why'd you pick Loveland? Uh, my brother and I would come down here to bike and canoe. Uh-huh. And it, it, it definitely felt like, a community that was on sort of like the, you know, the new vinyl industry. It felt like, it felt like we were, it was on the cusp, you know, it was on the upswing. Okay. So let's get back, back up to the label here. So you start the label. What, what caused you to start the label? Do you know some friends and bands and they need distribution or how does that come about? Um, I was, I was producing records, uh, when I was in college and, and, you know, writing and recording and just like wanting to learn that stuff. And I was, uh, you know, super, inspired by uh daptone records so daptone's up in brooklyn and you know artists like sharon jones and and charles bradley when you know when i realized that there was a company in new york making soul and funk records that like i loved that sounded like old records that i loved that were making 45s you know back then in like 2004 is when i found out about them i was like this is amazing i want to figure out a way to do this so they were, it was very, very, very inspiring. So it was just a hobby for like, you know, eight years, basically. And then how did you find artists to be on the label? Um, it was pretty, it was pretty word of mouth. It was very much like, you know, the first handful of things were just like me and my buds recording stuff. And then, um, a, one of the guys from Budo's band and Sharon Jones band, his name's Tom Brennick. He, he had recorded this Afrobeat he, EP with this band, It Could Be Shakedown in Brooklyn, and they weren't planning on releasing it on on Daptone. And he was like, "Hey, I just you know I just tracked this at my studio. If you're interested in releasing it, and um, the guys are about my age, and you know we sort of connected, you know, got along. I was like, oh yeah, sure. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I figured it out. And uh, so that was like the first thing outside of me and my buddies." releasing 45s and so that kind of got us got us like a little foot in the new york scene um and then from there it was very much just like people hitting me up that were producing things in a like manner and it just grew very organically from there it'd be like oh hey man my buddy's working on these couple tunes you might like them and it would just Hmm. just happened like that and just sort of grew and yeah like i said by 2015 we had i think 30 45s and uh maybe two lps 
And so were these strictly marketed to record stores, or did you try to get airplay? Were, are, are they streamable, yeah, or are mostly, these vinyl only releases? Record, mostly record stores and DJs, primarily. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. We definitely weren't going after, like, like we do now. We weren't going after, like, mainstream press or anything like that. It was very much just, like, get these records in the hands of people that want records and okay. uh, and just every release try to push out a little farther. I see. So, but if somebody had a notion, could they hear one of your artists on Spotify or Apple Music? Or oh what? yeah, back yeah back then everything was on digital. Yeah, for sure too. Okay. Yep. All right. Cool. Cool. And then, so the first spot you move into is uh, the the original spot that was in the same building as the Montgomery Cyclery and as our store. Was that your first spot? Yep. Yep. That was the first location. We were there from we opened it in Valentine's Day of 2015, and we were there until uh, 2018. Okay. And did you have a lot of inventory? Did you have to go out and buy a lot of like new vinyl? Because you said new vinyl wasn't on your radar yet. Was it strictly used to start? Um, so it was pretty much my collection and then whatever we could buy to to populate the store's inventory before we opened. We had a pretty good amount. We filled it up pretty well. Um, I think we had maybe ten or twelve thousand LPs wow. when we opened, which is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of it, most of it was used. We did buy some new. We basically allocated about uh, we we allocated about ten thousand dollars worth uh, ten of capital for new vinyl inventory, which back then sounded like a lot of money, but didn't get us very far. I was going to say, as far as it maybe it maybe got us a few rows of new vinyl. New vinyl is expensive. Uh, it is, yeah. So it got us, you know, it got us started. You know, that was you had to start somewhere, and sure. um, and we quickly realized that. It was going to be really, uh, you know, it was going to be very easy to grow the new vinyl inventory just because of availability. The issue was going to be obviously cost um, because 10 new titles come out every Friday that you want to bring in and you're bringing in two or three or four or five of those, you know, there's definitely going to be some growing pains. And so the first couple of years, it was a whole lot of every dollar that we made went right back into the business for sure. It, is it harder to judge what like ten releases are gonna sell in your store, or do you have a big enough audience? That, yeah. Because my daughter it, went from buying, like, what she bought the Wallows at your place, but now she's all into K-pop. So you know, it's just strange. Uh, how to, and she still listens to both now, but it's just really weird as to what she's in the mood for. And I imagine that's probably the the, the challenge industry wide. Yeah, for sure. Because you know, every week now there's every Friday there's around. 150 to 350 new UPCs on vinyl that are being distributed. So there's new, that many new titles that are coming out in some fashion around the world. And obviously we're not bringing that many in a week. We're, but we are bringing in around, you know, uh, to 80 and, uh, it's hard, you know, you have, you have to go through and really know what to buy. And it's, it's almost like, you know, playing the stock market because all these sales are one way sales. Yeah. So it's not like if we if something's a dud, we can just return it to the distributor. It's not a thing in our industry. So if you buy it, you own it. Hmm. Yeah, that used to be the case with CDs back when I worked at oh, yeah. mall record stores. You would just send back a box of you know unsealed CDs, and there you have it. You know, you yep. you'd get credited. Yep. But yeah. <laughs> so what do you owe the explosion in new vinyl to exactly? Um. I think it is uh, a handful of things. Um, I think, first off, artwork is a thing. You know, like, 
the size of artwork and sort of like the 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 tangibility aspect of it seeing like having a record touching the record placing the record on the turntable and and you know there's all sorts of things that come along with that meaning uh, you want to show those records when people come to your house like it's a it's a social community thing it's also like a disconnecting thing because it's you're listening to music not on your phone you know so you're listening to a record a side at a time and um i think for some people it's audio quality um i think that's way smaller than everything else though i think that's like two percent three percent okay you know uh but i think i think the experiential sort of factors are really the really what's driving this um i think collectability is a thing too people like the people have always liked to collect things and you know there's these are these are things to collect i think ownership is a thing you know when you stream something on Spotify, you don't own it. You know, that's a fact. When you buy a CD, when you buy an album, you own that record um, forever. You know, uh, but I, I think more than anything, it's definitely exp- it, it's the experiential aspect of it. You know, it's the process of going to a record store, buying a record, taking it home, taking it out of the package, listening to the record. And I think the other side of that is that I think there is so much music in the world that the reason record stores continue to exist it is like there's so much music in the world but somebody has to tell you what to check out somebody has to be the person the informer the person distilling it down to here's what's good and uh or here's what we think is good and i think that's that's a huge service that, that record stores still serve you know and that's so individual and um you know, so you can come into a record store and go, what's cool? And, you know, oh, cool. Yeah. I don't know this. I like this. You make you a know, lot so of, so I think, yeah. Okay. So I think it's a lot of, I think it's a lot of things. I think the last, maybe the other thing is, you know, I'm 36 and obviously I had a unique childhood with regard to records. You know, not everybody grew up with tens of thousands of records in their basement and started selling records when they were 12. So, I'm sort of, I sort of have a unique perspective on records and for in general, but a lot of people that are my age didn't experience, you know, we're, I was born in 85. So records really weren't cassettes and CDs were around when I was growing up, but records were not in, in a new capacity. And so for me, I think there's a lot of people my age, maybe a little younger, a little older too, that are, they do comprise a big chunk of the market that are people that are genuinely just experiencing this process for the first time. You know, it's not a, it's not like a fad or, or this hip thing, but there's a lot of people that we see, especially in Loveland, that feels like they're just experiencing this very, very cool thing for the first time, maybe, you know, like, and and that's, that's a very, you know, that's so genuine and authentic. I love that. Yeah, that's a, you bring up a good point about the the tangibility. Because I'm looking at a box, boxes and boxes of CDs. My wife has made me go through, and I'm going to get rid of some of them. But some of them I've decided I'm actually going to keep because uh, one of the one of my bands. I'm in their Facebook group fan page on uh, on Facebook there, and uh, someone was saying, "Hey, uh, I live in Sweden, and I'm on Spotify right now, and Architecture Morality Live is gone. <laughs> is any can you play it in your country?" And everyone's like. 
no. So, like, yeah, when you stream stuff, sometimes it just disappears for whatever reason. Yeah. They don't have yeah, the rights somebody anymore. Lose, somebody so, loses the rights to it or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was one artist, a fellow who, who got in a little bit of trouble a couple of months ago, by the way, Drake Bell. Uh, he had a case where he made an album with a guy. Uh, the guy co-wrote and co-produced the album. Well, they kept fighting back and forth over who owned it. So it would be on Spotify, and then it wouldn't be on Spotify, and it would be back on Spotify. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, so that ownership thing is uh, is very big, kids. And the other thing, too, uh, and I always say this, can we stop saying all the music in the world is on Spotify? Because it's not, folks. <laughs> oh, for sure. I yeah, it's, to... it's, it's definitely not. I, and I mean, we... the, the rights holders, you know, are monitoring Spotify more than ever. Yeah. You know? Um, it's not like, it's not like it's hard to figure out if something's on there. You, it either is or it, it isn't. Well, not only that, it's even, they even think it's worthy to be on there. It's like, well, if we, who's going to listen to it? Who's going to, you know, who's going to click on it and even to make that 10th of a penny for us? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of even putting the effort into getting it uploaded and mastered and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird time. It is, yeah. Uh, so what's weird? You're saying you were born in '85. You were born the year before I bought my first CD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about that last night in, 19, in spring of 1986 for my birthday. I treated myself to a CD player, and I bought Synchronicity, Into the Gap, and I can't remember what the third one was. I've been thinking all day. About, oh, it's probably Pet Sounds. It had to have been. Why well, wouldn't yeah. have been Pet Sounds? It had to have been. No, no. <laughs> it was the Lexicon of Love by ABC. I don't think Pet Sounds. Oh, come, nice. Pet Sounds hadn't come out yet. In fact, I listened on CD. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they were just re-releasing. They had just started re-releasing stuff, and right. the, the big push had just happened in 1985. So yeah, I think they were still fighting over uh, the, the rights of some of the records. So those were the first three that I that I bought. And um, I remember my wife sold some vinyl back to you a couple years ago. And while I was waiting, I found a copy of the Lexicon of Love and I listened to it in your listening station while you guys were going through the stuff. So yeah, <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. And yeah. Had- that's, that's another fun part of it is, yeah, just like the listening stations and just like being able to, I mean, that, that speaks more to like the existence of a record store than records themselves. But like, yeah. you know, I think records, the success of record stores around the country and world are sort of a reflection of like the general culture of records, you know, and that is like discovery you know, like discovering new music, which is so cool. And there's, it's what more fun way to do it than, you know, just going into a record store and listening to stuff, you know, that you have no idea what it is. Yeah. My daughter bought a turntable and then she bought a newer turntable. And then the, one of the ones she bought one that uh, it plays a slightly faster, I think than it should. So she tried to return and they wouldn't let her. And so she left them mm-hmm. a nasty review on Amazon. But anyway, she gave me that one and uh, she brought a, a new one. And I saw some of my old vinyl stuff that I didn't, uh, I didn't want to get rid of because it, it's not available digitally, and I don't even think it's a lot of it's streamable. So I have probably about a dozen or so records. I have a ton of twelve-inch. That's another thing that's not widely streamable, by the way. Oh right, twelve-inch yeah, twelve singles are yeah, that, and that's I mean again, same thing. It's like you know what sustained the industry when it was at its lowest of lows. I mean, hip hop and yeah. you know hip hop, electronic, you know DJ culture is really what got us through this. And you think about it, it's like yeah. At that time period, maybe all that stuff was on Apple or on iTunes, but the 12 remixes weren't, you know, the acapella, the yeah. instrumental, all that stuff. That wasn't, that wasn't on there. And they so, still I mean, aren't. that's those things that are only available in whatever specific format, whatever that may be, you know, obviously is going to make people want to find them. Yeah. Like, uh, the group I was 
referenced earlier, accustomed maneuvers in the dark, I've got a bunch of their 12 inches, which I've digitized, but I still I can't let go of them because I'm just afraid something's going to happen to my digital files and I won't right. have them ever. <laughs> and another thing, record I have, which I have the ironically named Rarities by the Beach Boys, which was released on Warner Brothers when they were on there, and it is a bunch, it's 10 or 12 rare tracks and different versions of songs and it was it didn't sell very well even back then when it was released and it's been deleted since and so it is in uh, fact rare <laughs> rarities <laughs> is rare so I, i've hung on to that one too and uh, i'll probably try to redigitize that sometime in the future um so what is the percentage you would say of the average record buyer buying new versus used my daughter comes in she's strictly buying new because she's listening to new bands who are releasing new stuff i don't really well she might have gone back and bought the clash she did buy a Clash vinyl from you guys, that's right. But I think it was a reissue, if I'm not mistaken. Right. But what would you think is the is the balance of new versus used? Whenever I go to your place and she's looking, I'm strictly looking at the used to see if anything, any old cool stuff I used to listen to uh, on vinyl. It's probably our, our sales, I can't speak on a customer basis necessarily, but sales-wise, it's about a about an 80-20 split, 80 new, 20 used. Okay, interesting. Um. But but I mean the used, it's also just way easier to grow than the new sales because you know our our used turnover is like one to one, meaning like if we put out a thousand new used, you know, freshly priced used cleaned records in a week, we're going to sell roughly a thousand that week. So I mean it's like it's this thing where it just they just sell, you know, the, the turnover is really really high. Whereas with new, it's sort of like, um, it's, it's almost kind of renewable in a way. So like, okay, a new Krunman record comes out. Well, cool. It's not like we're just going to sell one. We're going to sell 500, you know, and we're going to sell, we can sell them online and we can sell pre-orders and we can sell them in store. Whereas used is strictly in store, no online. And, um, so the ceiling for new is just in general is higher. I'd say in store it's probably like it'll it would probably get pulled down more like 70 30 new versus used but it's still very it's still very high it still favors new for sure so when someone sells back records to you their old record collections like I did with my wife <clears throat> do you I guess uh-huh. you use the internet to determine what the value of those is because it seems it's harder to find on the other side of the of the counter, it seems harder to find a, a record where the record store didn't really know what it was worth, and it's oh, this is it's actually this rare thing because some of the other fan pages I'm in, people will be like, oh, found the Heaven Seventeenth, found the U.S. pressing of this album in, in the cheap bins at my local record shop, and I got it for for a pound, and I'm like, how does that happen? How do they not know what they have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we we don't miss much. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's for sure. And you know, we try to sit pricing wise, we try to sit somewhere in the in the the happy medium of not being so cheap that somebody could buy it just to flip it online, yeah, but also not being so expensive that people are just like, well, what these are like online prices. So you know, yeah. if you get a rare record and it's a hundred dollar record, and you put it out for seventy five bucks, well, cool, somebody can come in locally and go, oh, this is a hundred dollar record and it's in great shape and it's seventy five bucks. That's a good price, but also it's not so cheap that somebody's going to come in and go. I'm going to buy this for 75 bucks and see if I can get a hundred out of it online. You know, it just, that's the, that's sort of the needle you want to thread. I think with used is, uh, you know, cause we're certainly not trying to get the tippy top out of every used record, you know? Yeah. Cause if you did that, 
no one's going to want to come into your store. You know, what's the point of doing that? Exactly. So we try to sit. We try to sit in that that space of uh, not flippable, but also you know fair fair pricing. For sure. Um, so but you, we mentioned this a little earlier the audio quality issue. Uh, and some people would, will argue that oh no, vinyl sounds so much better than than digital or or streaming or thing. Where where do you land on that? Uh, I think it's every single situation is uh, pretty case by case. I think vinyl does have the potential to be in some ways superior. You know, I, I certainly don't poo poo digital streaming or or you know high end digital masters or, or anything like that. I think it it really for me. When it comes to a record, um, like the quality of a record listening experience, I think it, it not, it, there are a lot more factors that matter way more than the fact that it's a record. You know, I think the mastering, who cut the lacquer, who did the plating, who pressed it, all those things matter way more than, and are way more determining in the quality of the listening experience than the fact that it's a record. You know, it's not going to be inherently better just because it's on a record. It could be a really terrible pressing or it could be an amazing pressing. Those factors just matter way, way more. And when it comes to digital, you know, like a 24-bit, 48K, 48 hertz, you know, high-end digital file, that's what most records are being cut from anyway, you know, are being cut from digital files. Yeah. Because, you know, who can afford to shuffle tape across the country to lacquer cutters and risk damaging masters and, and things like that. And so I think, you know, how do you, there's no way to, I, I, there's no way to say, I don't think to listen to a 24 bit 48 Hertz wave file and go, all oh, this sounds bad. It sounds like digital. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, we had a little eye opening <laughs> experience the other day. My daughter got a new phone and uh, she's like, I swear the Bluetooth sounds terrible in my car now. She also has the CDs of this K-pop group she's been listening to. So we sat in the car and we listened to the CD and we listened to her Bluetooth. We listened to my phone to see if it was. And boy, I was shocked at how good the CD sounded over the Bluetooth. And I wasn't, well, I wasn't shocked, but I mean, it just, I guess I hadn't really listened, done a comparison in a long time. Because I always hear people say, oh, well, uh-huh. when they make digital, they do, I'm going to do Dice's lady's voice. And then they do digital, they compress it down into, well, I'm a 50-year-old man. I, I can only hear a certain range of frequencies anyway. I don't care. And boy, oh boy, maybe I do care because it's still a big difference. 128 kilobytes, which is like this, what most <laughs> streaming platforms are versus even that CD. It's a huge difference. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you're, if you're listening on a streaming service versus, uh, uh, that's compressing it or you don't have like the audio settings turned up or like you're not doing lossless streaming. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. You're talking about losing a lot of information, <laughs> you know, a ton of information there. You know, I listen a lot on, on Spotify, but I do think there's definitely a movement within the streaming services to start offering like higher end audiophile type of, uh, type of services. Interesting. Like, you know, Apple's Apple's going to start offering that you can stream lossless. You can you can stream waves basically. You can stream oh the actual masters. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is neat. Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, speaking <clears> of, <throat> I'm ordering the uh, well the CD versions of because I, I I don't think my record player is up to it. The uh, the new Feel Flows uh, set that's coming out this Friday as we were recording this. Um, cool. Yeah, you guys gonna have that on vinyl. Uh, I have no idea. I'm I'm up in label oh, that, land. That's I'm right. Like, that's, I'm ignorant as okay. to what's coming out. 
All right, that's cool. Right now, at least. Yeah, but I am looking forward to hearing it on, especially now after doing that little experiment in my daughter's car. Uh, I think I'm probably going to be better off because uh, I bought some stuff I was missing in my Beach Boys collection. I just downloaded it from uh, iTunes, and I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have gone home and bought the CDs after all. But um, Yeah, looks like we'll have it, actually. Yeah, there's like a 5LP and a 4LP yep. and a 2LP version. Yep, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yep. I'm going full bore, man, all five CDs. There's not a there's not a take <laughs> that I'm not interested in, although that does get a bit excessive, I think. I, I mean, how many versions do you need? But then again... I kind of like to hear how everything was assembled. So I guess if you're, oh yeah, I yeah. do too. Yeah, surfs up, a, surfs up is a, a great. I love that record. Yeah, it's uh, that's it's awesome. Uh, so yeah. as a kind of a producer yourself, uh, when you're producing stuff, I mean, how much of an ear do you have? You know, are, are you a, a Phil Spector type, or are you 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 know audition the kick drum over and over again, or are you like you know this is the basic sound we're going for? This is. Um, I, I definitely have a. You know, we, we spend a lot of time, you know, dialing in tones for sure. But um, the room, the room we're working in, you know, I pretty, I know how it, I pretty much know how it works at this point. Know how the room, you know, acts. And um, but I mean, we're definitely going for on our label for a specific sound too. You know, we're we're not just going, you know, we're not just like generically recording things. We're going after a specific kind of dirty. I won't say lo-fi, but like mid-fi. Uh-huh. sort of uh, <laughs> uh, copyright pending on that term. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like a mid, make a mid fidelity kind of dirty late sixties, early seventies sort of vibe and, and timbre. You know, we also want all, our, all of our music to be, you know, to feel contemporary, you know, even if it, even if it has elements of, you know, things that, that poke those like nostalgia strings, we still wanted to obviously, you know, I always say, I always use the phrase uh, forward facing, you know, so I always want everything to be sure. Maybe it feels this way, but I want, I want it to overall feel like it's now and, and facing forward, not looking backward. So, yeah. And I think that's really a big, uh, that's been a big movement for a while. I remember when Foster the People first came out, the first thing that dude said was like, oh, the thing that got me into music was my dad gave me a cassette of the Beach Boys. Speaking of yep. And there you have it. So are you still recording yeah, your no. own stuff? Or are you recording other people? Or what, what's kind of the balance for the label? It, so it's, it's a mix. Like I'm recording stuff that I'm doing. I'm recording other people. And then we have, you know, other artists and other producers recording for the label as well. But it's, it's probably, you know, probably only like 10% is coming out of here. And uh, the rest of it's coming from artists either recording themselves or going to producers that we work with and trust. Um to turn in, you know, final mixes for mastering, but it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's going that, that percentage is going to be increasing. Um, we're looking at purchasing a new building and building a new studio that would allow us to like basically have a studio, you know, operational seven days a week and we could offer that to our artists. So that, that feels like a big, a big step in the right direction. And is it more for that now with digital technology? Cause people could, like you said, people record at home. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, I think so, for sure. It's definitely cheaper to get into it. We still record everything to tape. Uh, so, you know, we're either recording to reel-to-reels or we're recording to sometimes a cassette, if that's the vibe that we want. Hmm. But um, almost always reel-to-reels. And then we're always, we're usually doing the mixing process in the digital space. So it's it's not it's not usually about, um, you know, we're not, I'm not like a purist or anything like that. Like, yeah. I don't think everything has to be recorded to tape. It's really just a means to an end. It's like, I want it to sound like this. This is the easiest way to do that. So let's do it that way. And I think there's also, you know, from a creative standpoint, you know, I, 
if you, if you talk to producers and musicians, um, you know, limitations force creativity. So, you know, if you, if you oh, put yourself in you a go. box, you're going to have to be creative. You know, if you put, if you say, I've only got eight tracks on this reel or I've only got four tracks on this cassette, you have to get creative with how you're going to use those four tracks. And, and, um, and also it puts pressure on you, performance pressure. You know, it's, if you know that when you mess up, we're going to tape over that take, then it puts you in a different head state, you know, headspace than if, you know, we're recording to Pro Tools and we can just save, you know, the hundreds of times that you guys need to take you to take right. Yeah. And then paste it together. They got a good yeah, so it's part part psychological and and you know and then part like you know creative brain you know all right I've only because you know with pro it's like with a computer you have infinite you know you can do infinite tracks and it's fine but if you're like all right I only got eight tracks you know Beatles only had you know eight or sixteen or you know Derek and the Dominoes had eight it's like you know those are great records they made yeah. amazing records with eight or sixteen so we should we should we could probably figure out. A, that we could probably make the best we well, can with that too. Yeah, and it's funny because then you can also, but you also get technically creative because the when I worked with the guy in college, we ran into the same problem. It was just the two of us, so I had to figure out a way to do multiple overdubs just using two tape recorders. And of course, you didn't, as you as an audio person, you will understand this. Like this, this does you don't get very far because once you do it too many times, the bottom end starts to disappear and gets lost in the mud. But uh, we were able Which to is do some. Cool. It was, we, yeah, it, it's good for, and then you, you learn, because I, I didn't know anything, I didn't know what I was doing at all, he was the musician, I was just, you know, I liked to, I thought I could sing, I couldn't, and, you know, I was interested in kind of the technical aspects, I like to write lyrics, but, and I, when I was figuring out doing that mixing thing, I, I figured out that, oh, we should probably start with the bottom end, because that's gonna, you know, if it does get muddy, that won't hurt too bad, if the high end gets lost, then you're kind of screwed, because then it's just right. a big bunch of white noise. But another thing that my, one of my favorite groups said, quoting Brian Eno uh, in turn, is that, you know, would, even if you have the biggest pile of junk for equipment, that's your sound. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, you get a, you get a particular sound. Yeah, there's a lot of us that use the same reel to reel. And, you know, the reel to reel machine we use definitely has a voice. You know, it has a particular sound and a way that it responds to, to certain frequencies. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you've used it enough, you can hear it in other records. You know, you hear it. There was an Arctic monk. The, the machine we use is a Tascam 388. A lot of us. And, um, there was an Arctic Monkeys record that came out a few years ago. I'm not particularly into the, uh, you know, the Arctic Monkeys or anything, but I remember listening to that record, the newest one that came out. I think it was called something in Casino Hotel or something, but I really liked it. And I remember thinking, man, like the tones are really cool. Like the drum tones are really cool. I really like them. And then I started digging in, and they recorded it all to the Tascam 388, or like the rhythm section to a 388. And I was like, oh, shit, of course I like it. You know, it <laughs> sounds like what we do. There you go. Yeah, I, I love discovering things like that. We, um, back when we were still recording our stuff, we went and saw a, a group I like called Book of Love, and uh, they were like a dance band. So we finally cornered the guy that was the main songwriter and producer and stuff, Ted. And we said, how do you get those snare sounds? Because this is the mid-'80s when drum machines still didn't sound great. And the kick sounded mm -hmm. great, but snares sounded awful. And his snare sounded brilliant. And we're like, how do you get those? He goes, I sample them from other records. I run them through a keyboard. The keyboard's the drum machine. I don't have a drum machine. I'm like, holy oh, shit. That was before the... Uh, hilarious. Yeah, that was before the Alesis came out. And then we spent a lot of money on that, and then we didn't bother. But yeah, so 
Um, that, that is fun. Um, so, so were some of the artists we could find on Coal Mine Records? If somebody had a notion to go off and, and try to find them, at least streamable at the moment, maybe the next time they're in the, in the record store. Um, yes, I mean, streamable, if you, uh, you know, if you're on whatever service you're on, if you just search Coal Mine Records, okay. um, we have, we have a big, on all services, there's, there's a main playlist called This Is Coal Mine Records, and it's just like a constantly updated, um, playlist that we just put the newest stuff up at the top all the time. But, you know, the, some bigger artists that folks would probably know would be like, uh, Duran Jones and the Indications. Delvon Lamar Organ Trio, we sell a lot of their records. Kelly Finnegan, Ghost Funk Orchestra, Rudy Dionda, Monophonics, Neil Francis, GA20, Eekby Shakedown. There's a lot. We were, I think we're working with around, right, right in the neighborhood of like 40 or 40 or so artists on the label. So, and you, um, keeps us busy for sure. And they're from all over the world and the country and all that? Yeah, yeah. Mostly, mostly state in the States. Um, a lot on the West Coast. Um, a handful in the Midwest and uh, a handful up in in uh, Brooklyn area. So okay. it's yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fun. It's a pretty fun, diverse group, and it's continuing to grow. And you know, just looks like it's getting bigger and better every year. Do people send you stuff and say, "Hey, I'd like to be on your label," or does it not work that way anymore? That was the way it was when we were doing it, but I know time. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. No, we probably get around five or six submissions a day. It's pretty, oh wow, a lot. Um, yeah, it's like every morning. That's the first thing I do. It's either the best or worst way to start the day. Ha. I can't decide what, but, um, but honestly, that's not most projects that are on the label do not. I think only maybe one thing, maybe two have ever come to fruition yeah. like that. Um, most everything, like I said, is, is still very much like friend of a friend, you know, like, Oh, Hey, I'm my buddy's working on this side project. You mind if I send you the, you know, the song, see if you're into them. And it's, it's still, still very, very much like that, which is fun because it feels organic and it feels very familial in that way. You know, everybody has connections to everybody else. And so it's, it's fun. It feels like one big, you know, one big family. Is it difficult getting the stuff pressed on vinyl these days? I know that was kind of a, a problem when vinyl exploded that they couldn't print vinyl fast enough for a while because they changed all these a lot of the plants had just closed. Some had been converted to make uh, CDs or DVDs or other things. And has that been a problem or have they, or that caught back up with the demand? It's a, it's a gigantic problem right now. It wasn't a problem pre COVID. It, okay. it was, it was a problem, but not that big of a problem. It was like, you know, 2019 turnaround times on LPs were probably, uh, th- three months on average, two months. If it was fast, three and a half months, if it was slow. Which wasn't crazy. Uh, now, because of a lot of different factors, uh, way increased demand, lost press time during the pandemic that you can't make up. You know, it's not like you can't make records any faster. You know, you can't make the worldwide output of records cannot and will not catch up with the lag that we're in for probably a few years. Um, right now, if I were to go place a new order, with our pressing plant up in Cleveland, it would be pressing, not released. It would be pressing in September of next year. Oh my God. Wow. Which means it would be released in December, you know, or something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, or maybe November. So it's terrible right now. So it just means, you know, labels, it means there's huge gaps in availability with labels. 
You know, so a new release comes out, it sells out, and it's going to be months before it's back in print. And for for smaller labels, you know, we're like a medium sized label at this point, but for like smaller labels, it's almost like wildly prohibitive because you're going to put all this money out that you maybe don't have, and you're not going to be able to get any of it back for twelve or thirteen months. So it's it's pretty rough right now. Weird time. Sounds like it. Now I know as a store, you guys do stuff for Record Store Day. As a label, does Coal Mine Records do specific things for Record Store Day, or is that kind of suspended because of COVID? Uh, no, it, it's it's been a thing, and we do for sure. Uh, we've we've released about nine or ten records, or maybe maybe seven or eight records that have been official Record Store Day releases. We had one this past June. Um, it's called Soul Slabs Volume Three. It was our third in our compilation series that we do and it's just like a compilation of a bunch of the a sides from our 45s so it's a chance to kind of get a bunch of new fans to the label and expose maybe some of our smaller artists to folks that you know haven't heard of them because they don't buy 45s so uh it's been a really successful compilation series and uh yeah we're just going to keep doing those because comps are so fun because they're like you know there might be really big artists on the comps but there's also all these little small artists that, you know, maybe it's the first time they've ever been on an LP or anything like that. So, uh, and record store day is the perfect day to sort of highlight them. So yeah, we, we, we go really, really hard with, with record store day. And, um, next record store day in April, we have two releases already, uh, approved. One will be a live record that was recorded in Loveland, actually. Oh, so, neat. Cool. Yeah, it was recorded directly to, directly to tape at the old, old location and we're gonna oh nice. we're pressing up ten thousand of it so wow and boy there's a, a forgotten concept the b-side man oh yeah the b-side for sure that's uh yeah. i'm on the phone that, right now that's yeah it's almost all that that's uh something that i mean we kind of had in the in the cd age if so you released a single you would still get a track on that there wasn't on the album, so it was kind of a B side, even though the CD only had one side. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, back in the day with the with the vinyl man, when you got that that extra track on there that wasn't on the album, uh, that was very ex- especially when it was good. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's the. I mean, we still definitely use that format. Um, you know, well yeah, we try to make sure things that go on our forty five B sides are true B sides, and you know, not on the LP. And you know, in the digital space, the strategy sort of becomes. You know, let's say an out, let's say an artist has, in an ideal world, an artist has 12 tracks for their album and 10 will go on the record and two of them will be either leading or, you know, after the, after the fact, 45s and they'll be B sides. But the nice thing about the digital space is you can kind of release them. Let's say you release them leading up to a campaign physically, but you hold on to them digitally. They become, they become extra assets after the LP is out. So, you know, if the record comes out, like we're going to do the same thing with this GA20 record we just released last Friday. You know, we have these live sessions that we did and we're just going to hold on to them and then just sort of sprinkle them out over the next few months just to sort of, you know, it's like an afterburner. Right. You know, it just keeps things, keeps the momentum churning a little bit afterwards. So I think we've come up with some kind of creative ways to, to sort of use a, a very, very, kind of a very old concept with 45s and b-sides and sort of maintain that while also you know coming up with a way to apply it in the you know the, the streaming digital space that we're in 
Yeah, I have a soft spot for 45s because that's where I started collecting records because, you know, growing up in the 80s, we didn't have a lot of money. An, an album was just like, you know, a, a tremendous investment. But, you know, a single it was like, well, probably less when I was starting buying them, probably 90 cents. They got up to a buck and stayed there after a while. But, you know, a dollar, I could afford that, you know, spend a dollar sure. my allowance on a 45. And that's probably why I'm not, I not was never really an album person, which is makes me, I always say makes me a terrible music fan. I mean, I, there's albums <laughs> I enjoy, the aforementioned Pet Sounds, but really, I was always a hit singles person because I listened to the radio a lot, and I bought 45s, so, I mean. <laughs> yeah, man. And that's why I like B-sides. Yeah, 45s are, 40, and 45s are like, that's sort of the, the foundation for the, the soul and funk, the current soul and funk and R&B scene is, you know, that's how a lot of things are still disseminated is, is through 45s, so that's like the, it's the backbone of our label, for sure. Cool. Well, let's get to all the, uh, the the details here. Of course, uh, Platteroom is in right there in the, the heart of historic Loveland, uh, right there, right off the bike trail, in a beautiful old yes. building. And so, and the, does Coal Mine Records have a separate website? I know you can link to Coal Mine from. It does. Okay. So that's, yep. And we'll, CoalMineRecords.com. There yep. you go. All right. Sounds good. And let me. So you're all on the social medias. I know that you're on your your Facebooks, your Twitter, and Instagram as well. Yeah, yeah, mostly, uh, yeah, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Bandcamp, okay. all that stuff. Oh, Bandcamp, there you YouTube. go. That's, that's a good place for folks to follow uh, new and upcoming artists. I always forget about Bandcamp. Oh, yeah. Um, and, sure, I like Bandcamp. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think bands can make more money that way because if you buy something from Bandcamp, and I can't remember what the other site is, I just bought uh, a CD Seeds song for one of our podcast episodes a couple months ago, and I bought it off of the, it might have been Bandcamp actually, but the band makes more money, kids. Because it goes directly, more right. a bigger percentage goes to them than if you would have streamed it or whatnot. And uh, yep. the, the other order of business we have is that as the guest, you get to pick the coupon code for the uh, upcoming week. So this coupon code will be good for listeners to use uh, until the next episode of the podcast drops. So it can either be a one word or a, a couple of word phrase that will function as the coupon code to help folks take 20% off of their uh, order at Old School Shirts or Cincy Shirts. Uh, what would you like that code to be? Let's uh, let's have it be Plaid Room, P-L-A-I-D-R-O-O-M. Perfect. There you go. All right. So go visit them in person, folks, and visit them online as well. And Terry, appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, it was a fun chat. Yeah, thanks so much. Right, yeah, well, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, have a great rest of your day, guys. Great. I'll see you in, in person soon, I'm sure, out your way. All right. We'll be here. Right, thanks, Terry. Bye-bye. All right. See ya. Bye. The Sunday morning gospel goes good with the soul. Terry Cole, there's add some music to your day from the new Beach Boys box set. Feel flows the Sunflower and Surf's Up sessions. As I was telling Terry, I'm not sure I need all the alternate takes and different versions and live versions, but it turns out I do. I bought it. Not on vinyl, I bought it on CD, because that's me. But uh, so fun to go record shopping and uh, you know check out all the great record stores we have in town. Shake It and Everybody's and, of course, Plaid Room there in Loveland and a whole lot more. Just Google record stores in Cincinnati. There's actually quite a few now you can check out. And uh, also check out the Beach Boys box set, because I-, I didn't realize how much I liked those albums until I bought that box set. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. So do check that out as well. It's one of the things you can pick up there uh, from Terry and his brother at Plaid Room. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email podcast at cincyshirts.com. 
gmail.com and put podcast guest in the subject line and then tell us a little bit about the person you'd like us to have on the show. Or if it's you, tell us why you'd be a good guest for the Cincy Shirts podcast. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state as always, check out the Cincy Shirt Podcast archives. Today's show is produced by me, with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music in iTunes. Well, it's Apple Music now. I keep calling it iTunes because I still have iTunes on my computer. Uh, Spotify, Google Play, I guess, wherever else you get your music. Amazon Music, you can find uh, you can find them there. That is Big Nothing from Philadelphia. Find vintage T-shirts from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We're up to like 36 now we have lots of defunct sports teams you know like football basketball soccer old malls old restaurants old tv personalities like cincy shirts but for those towns it also includes record stores by the way kids so if you have a hankering for like a record store shirt from another uh, area or maybe one of the old national chains like music land or camelot do check out oldschoolshirts.com we have a couple of them on cincy shirts we have music land and media play and the like so do check those all out and you can use the promo code what's the promo code for today it is plaid room that's simple all one word all lowercase, all uppercase, that part doesn't matter, but plaid room is all one word. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can go into our physical store over the Rhine or Hyde Park and say, hey, I'd like to use the podcast code PLADROOM if you don't mind and take 20% off your entire purchase. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.